The Christian Atheist is also available on YouTube, and you will find other great content, including the literature I frequently refer to, on our Simple Gifts podcast. If you find our content helpful, consider supporting us through PayPal at romanschapter5 at comcast.net. Welcome to No Compromise, where faith and reason fuse in conversation. Kill some bole pie. Hello, my love. Hi, Johnny. How are you? Good. You ready for another week? Yep. We just finished The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and now we are starting the next one in the canonical order, Yep. which is? The Horse and His Boy. The Horse and His Boy. One of our favorites, actually. It is. And I was thinking about it, and I was thinking about how the other books, um, the other two, we pulled out a lot that relates to society, you know, the way society is going. and Christian structures. Yeah. But this one is more like individual and more personal. Yeah, and much more, of, much more narrative based. Yeah, no, I'm saying personal in that the the lessons that it teaches are on a personal level, it, rather it's, than it's, on take on all of society. It's more like personal. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, that's a really good take. Yeah. I hadn't thought of it in that way, but yeah. you're right. Because when we were trying to pull stuff out of it, we wanted it to relate to the evident evidence and faith, faith, right? And we were having a hard time trying to find. Yeah, and I think it's more like a. More like a commentary for individual Christians. Yeah, right, exactly. That's true, because it deals with the main characters and their walk with or discovery of Christ figure. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's interesting. I hadn't caught that, even all the conversations we've had about it. Yeah, good point, love. Thank you. We might quickly summarize what we've learned this time then, um, like this. That the horse and his boy is the most intimate of the Chronicles of Narnia. Mm -hmm. It concentrates on our individual narratives, the the story of each follower of Aslan, their story, their walk with God. It tells us how his presence, his provision, his guidance, his discipline are always there from our birth, as when Shasta was taken in by Arshish, because Aslan brought him to the shore. And that our story will always be our story. It is unique to us, to each one of us. Doesn't it say in Revelation that each one is given a name that only they will know? That's true, yeah. So this is really reflecting that. Yeah. So it is our unique relationship to the eternal mystery, Mm -hmm. to the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. And I think, right. I, I think, even though this doesn't have the sort of content that we were able to dig out of the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and the Magician's Nephew, yeah, it is a unique contribution in the Chronicles of Narnia. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we have three goals this time. You don't talk about Hegel, <laughs> that you don't cry, okay, and that you keep it short. <laughs> I think I think I can promise on two of those. Whether <laughs> I will cry or not, I think it depends on one particular episode. So we'll see how it goes. <laughs> I'm just kidding, John. <laughs> <laughs> so good. We think we can move through this one pretty quickly in a right. single episode, whereas exactly. the other ones took much more time. Exactly. Okay, so chapter one, 
And that's when the carry the main character is introduced. First of all, this takes place, this whole book takes place when Peter, Edmund, Susan, and Lucy are, well, they're adult kings and queens. Right. We find out that Susan is being courted by a neighboring prince. Prince of Kalorman. Mm-hmm. Named Rabidash. Right. But in the beginning of the book, it starts out at a poor fisherman's hut, and he has a son, in quotation marks, right. <laughs> named Shasta. And in, at this point, Arshish, who is his father, he, we suppose is his father, has a guest in the house. Right. And the guest is a Tarkan. Right, a Tarkin. Tarkin. Tarkin, Tarkin. Not sure how it's said. <laughs> So what is, what is a Tarkan in our world? We looked it up. There is a people group associated with Pakistan and India okay. that were called the Tarkans. That's right. But in, in Lewis's work here, mm-hmm. Tarkin and Tarkina is the equivalent of well, times like of the nobility. nobles. Uh-huh. So they call someone a lord, and that means they're of the noble blood. Right. And so Tarkane would relate to one of the nobility of Kalorman, right. and the feminine equivalent would be Tarkina. Okay. Okay. So this represents, I think, very clearly the opposition between East and West. Mm-hmm. The Kalormines with their curved scimitars mm-hmm. and the Narnians with their straight swords definitely represent the two cultures in right. conflict right. and Eastern religion versus the more Christian version in the West. Right. And the Tarkin has come on a horse who happens to be a Narnian horse, a speaking horse. But nobody knows that. Yeah, nobody knows that until he speaks to Shasta. Right. And he proposes to Shasta that they mm-hmm. run away together. Right. To go to Narnia. Because Arshish, Shasta's supposed father, is about to sell him to the Tarkin. Right. And so... The horse says, it'd be better for you to run away With me, than to be under to this Narnia. guy. And it's a, it's a mutual benefit mm-hmm. because the horse would be, if he had no rider, probably captured and taken back to his master much right. more quickly. But if he has Shasta with him, he's more likely to succeed right. at running away to Narnia. Okay. And so by the end of the chapter, they are ready to, to, to go. Right. Okay. But that's when Shasta finds out that's not his real father. Right. Okay. So chapter two, they're on their journey. Shasta's learning how to ride a horse. He's having a lot of issues. And finally, one night when they're running, yep. when suddenly... They hear a lion in the distance. And okay. the lion sort of seems to be they running away from the lion, so they sort mm-hmm. of mo- move in a particular direction. Right. And it moves them closer to another horse and another rider. Right. Well, they're not anxious to be seen. Right. So they are. They would like to get away from them, but the lion appears on both sides right. at alternate moments and drives the two together. And eventually they find out that it's another talking horse. With another teenage rider. Who's trying to escape. Right. And it's a girl. <laughs> yeah. Her name is Aravis. And the horse is a girl too. Right. Win. Right. Which reminds me, Shasta's horse is named Bree. Right. So we have four characters, the four main characters of the story, Bree, the talking horse, Quinn, the talking horse, and Shasta and Aravis. Shasta, we will find out, is actually an Archenlander, and Aravis is a... Kalorman. But of noble blood. Right. So in chapter three, they're riding together. Right. And by chapter three, Aravis tells her story, Mm -hmm. 
about how she uh, decided to escape. We already know Shasta's story. Right. Because that's been told since chapter one. But now um, we're going to hear Erevis's story. And she tells how she was supposed to marry a very old, ugly man <laughs> <laughs> she was going to have to marry. And she did not want to live her days with this man. And then Quinn, the horse, starts talking to her. And convinces her, don't kill yourself, run away with me to Narnia. Right, because Quinn is also from Narnia. Right. In order to escape, she drugs her servant girl and then gets away with Quinn. As Aravis nears the end of her tale, mm -hmm. Shasta breaks in and asks a question. He says, and what happened to the girl, the one you drugged? Doubtless she was beaten for sleeping late, said Aravis coolly. But she was a tool and spy of my stepmother's. I am very glad that they should beat her. I say, that was hardly fair, said Shasta. And here we see, like we saw in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, that sense of fair play right. and morality in Shasta. And it's a bit odd, because as a Kalorman, we would wonder where he got that, because right. he grew up under Arshish. And didn't really have much training in thinking about other people other than himself. Right. And yet he thought it was pretty unfair for Aravis to do this. Right. And Aravis's response to him is, I did not do any of these things for the sake of pleasing you. <laughs> <laughs> and that reminded me of something someone said to me on our walk today. <laughs> About shoes. About shoes. About when you said I had ugly shoes. <laughs> not one of my better moments in our dating life, huh? <laughs> <laughs> and that was after I paid for your coffee, too. <laughs> <laughs> and entertained you. I will never live it down. <laughs> okay, so that chapter ends with making a plan for how they're going to get through the city of Tashban, the capital city. Mm -hmm. Because in order to make it to Narnia, the most efficient route is right directly through the capital city. And, and they plan after they get through the city if they ever get separated, to meet at the tombs on the other side mm -hmm. of the city. And that's an important point. And it was very dangerous for them to go through the city. Right. They're all afraid that something bad is going to happen here. Right. Because there's so many people, the possibilities of being discovered right. are much more. But while they're going through the city in Chapter 4, Shasta falls in with the Narnians. Way, 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 came the voice. Way for the white barbarian king, the guest of the Tisrock, may he live forever. Way for the Narnian lords. It was quite unlike any other party they had seen that day. The crier who went before it was shouting, Way, way, was the only Kalormine in it. And there was no litter. Everyone was on foot. And Shasta had never seen anyone like them before. For one thing, they were all fair-skinned, as himself. And they were not dressed like men of Kalorman. The swords at their sides were long and straight, not curved like Kalormine scimitars. And instead of being grave and mysterious like most Kalormines, they walked with a swing and chatted and laughed. One was whistling. You could see that they were ready to be friends with anyone who was friendly, and didn't give a fig for anyone who wasn't. Shasta thought he had never seen anything so lovely in his life. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting that Shasta is drawn to something that he's never known before, and yet he recognizes it almost as an internal similarity to himself. Right, exactly. 
Uh, we are told in modern day America and in the Western world mm -hmm. that we're not supposed to judge other cultures in relation to our own and find anyone superior. And yet, Shasta here, to him it is evident that this is better than what he's known. Mm -hmm. And I think this is true for us. This idea that we can't judge another culture is silly. What he's known up until now has been cruelty. Right. And, and he sees something here, mm -hmm. an openness to others, a willingness to be friendly, a lack of the arrogance right. that characterizes the sort of structural, almost the caste, caste system. system. Mm -hmm. And we get that flavor, certainly, yes, from the Kalormine culture. It has the Eastern feel about mm -hmm. it in relation to the Western Narnian culture, right. which much more values the individual. Mm -hmm. and much less the sort of ca social castes that the Eastern societies uh, inculcate. So by nature, almost as evident, Shasta notes the superiority of that sort of culture. If not the superiority, Maybe not the superiority, but I was going to say the desire. Mm -hmm. The desire, right. he's desirous for that. He sees yeah. something that's missing in his life. Right. Something that perhaps is, is wrong with the society in yeah. which he's grown up. Exactly. And then the funny thing that happens next mm -hmm. is that these Narnian lords take him for... That's supposed to be a, in their own party. Right. A prince corps who has gone missing and take him with them back to the palace in Tashban. Right. Because they're there as the guests of the Tisrock. Mm -hmm. because Prince Rabadash wants to marry Queen Susan, right. the barbarian queen. Yes. Right. So he's, he is, as, as Lucy says, the voyage of the Dawn Treader, yeah. that Susan is the beautiful one. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I remember my mom saying that about her sister, my uh -huh. Aunt Dolly. My mother was, was a very humble person, mm -hmm. and yet you could see a certain degree of jealousy Aww. in that Aunt Dolly was the pretty one. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And that existed between Lucy and Susan as right. well. And Susan was the beautiful one that everyone desired. And Prince Rabadash had fallen in love with her. Right. And wanted her for his own. And that's why they're here in Kalorman. Right. So you said Shasta was mistaken. Prince Cora. So Archiland. he gets taken back to the palace right. of the Tisrock. With the Narnians. Right. And they find out that they start to discuss things with each other, the Narnians, and they f they feel that Rabidash is being hostile and, and they're, they're starting to feel trapped. Right. And so they have to plan for a way to get out. So then you get to the next chapter. They do plan their way out, right, at that point? Right. And Shasta hears their plans. Right. And he knows they're going to go back via the ship. Right. So the next chapter, uh, Prince Corin actually returns, and he switches places with Shasta. And so now, Shasta is free now. Free to, now to go to the tombs where he was supposed to meet Bree and Huin mm -hmm. and Aravis. Right. So the next chapter, Shasta is in the tombs where they agreed to meet, and during the night, and Cat shows up, and during very the, conveniently. Because Shasta is terrified at the tombs. Mm -hmm. And the cat leads him out of the tombs towards the desert. Mm -hmm. And Shasta lays down with the cat at his back facing the tombs so that he has the warmth of the cat behind him 
and he can keep an eye on what's going on in front of him. Right. In the middle of the night is... But he hears noises, mm -hmm. and it ends up being jackals. Right. But then a lion comes up and scares the jackals off, and Shasta's, of course, terrified at the lion. Right. But... He finds... The lion goes away, and the cat comes right. back. Right, and then suddenly he finds there's a cat. Right. <laughs> right. And so he lays down again in comfort, comfort. with the cat. Mm-hmm. So in the meanwhile, while all of that is going on, Erevis is inside of Tashbin, and she happens to have met one of her old friends. So she agrees to help Erevis escape from the whole city. And in the process of escaping, they end up in a room hiding while Prince Rabidash and the Tizrak, the Tizrak and, and one of his ministers, the it? one who Erevis was supposed to That's marry. Right. <laughs> And they overhear, the girls overhear the, the plan. plans of Rabidash to take by surprise Archenland. And then, having done that, they will be able to take Queen Susan by force. Right. And this is because Narnia. Susan, the whole party, the whole Narnian party had already had escaped. Yep. They had already escaped. And he was upset about that. And so now he's going to go across the desert and he's going to get her. Right. And we see that the Tizrak himself, this great ruler, yeah. is a bit of a utilitarian yeah. in terms of ethics, <laughs> because all he sees his sons as is a means to an end. Right. And he thinks to himself, if Rabidash succeeds, I may very well get Narnia in the bargain. Right. If Rabidash fails... I will just disown him and not admit that he's any part of me. Exactly. And if he dies um, in the process, if he that's dies, totally fine. So be it. Because I have other sons. Right. He's kind of a place. dangerous son anyway. Right. And that tends to be the, the way of corrupt cultures. Right. Exactly. So that was the plan. The Tishrock agrees to everybody agrees to it. And then... They all meet up at the t outside the tombs. They start to cross the desert. And... As they're crossing the desert... They come to a place where the water is fresh and clean, right. and they're so relieved after their long journey that they lay down and fall asleep. Right. And when they wake up, they should be rushing on because they understand that the army of Rabidash is behind them, right. and they need to warn the king of Archenland that he's coming. Mm -hmm. But Bree thinks to himself that... We don't need to rush. Let's stop and have a bite to eat and a good drink, and then we'll move forward. Quinn and Aravis are deeply concerned about this delay, and they try to rush everything on, but it's Bree that holds them back. Right. The noble warhorse, as he deems himself. Uh -huh. Shasta looks back and sees that Rabidash is hard on their trail. Quick, quick, shouted Aravis. We might as well not have come at all. If we don't reach Anvard in time, gallop, Bree, gallop. Remember, you're a warhorse. It was all Shasta could do to prevent himself from shouting out similar instructions. But he thought, the poor chap's doing all he can already. And certainly, both horses were doing, if not all they could, all they thought they could, which is not quite the same thing. Bree had caught up with Wynn, and they thundered side by side over the turf. It didn't look as if Wynne could possibly keep up much longer. At that moment, everyone's feelings were completely altered by a sound from behind. It was not the sound they had been expecting to hear, yet Shasta knew it at once. 
It was the same snarling roar he had heard that moonlit night when they first met Aravis and Huynh. Bree knew it too. His eyes gleamed red, and his ears lay flat back on his skull, and Bree now discovered that he had not really been going as fast, not quite as fast as he could. Shasta felt the change at once. Now they were really going all out. In a few seconds, they were well ahead of Huynh. He looked over his shoulder. Everything was only too clear. A huge, tawny creature was behind them, and it was nearer every second and half-second. Their way was barred by a smooth green wall about ten feet high. In the middle of that wall there was a gate open. In the middle of the gateway stood a tall man dressed, down to his bare feet, in a robe colored like autumn leaves. Shasta saw all this in a glance, and looked back again. The lion had almost got Huynh now. It was making snaps at her hind legs, and there was no hope in her foam-flecked, wide-eyed face. Stop! bellowed Shasta in Bree's ear. Must go back! Must help! Shasta slipped his feet out of the stirrups, slid both his legs over on the left side, hesitated for one hideous hundredth of a second, and jumped. It hurt horribly, but before he knew how it hurt him, he was staggering back to help Aravis. He had never done anything like this in his life before, and hardly knew why he was doing it now. Aravis, then, is scraped by the lion's claws, and Wynne, too. She lets out a scream. Mm -hmm. He had no weapon, not even a stick or a stone. He shouted out idiotically at the lion, Go home! Go home! Then, to his utter astonishment, the lion, still on its hind legs, checked itself, suddenly turned head over heels, picked itself up, and rushed away. Come in, my daughter. Come in, the robed and bearded man was saying. And then, come in, my son, as Shasta panted up to him. He heard the gate close behind him, and the bearded stranger was already helping Aravis off her horse. And here we find that garden again. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Almost identical to the garden we saw in The, the Magician's, Magician's Nephew. Nephew. Yes. Mm -hmm. It has the, the same wall structure. Mm -hmm. It has the tree. It has the water. And it's interesting that it's being shepherded. Right. I'm not sure what other word to use. By right. someone that may be a human. I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. It seems to be the same type of person that we see in the Voyage of the Dawn Treader, right. who is the magician who's running the island of the Duffelputs. Mm -hmm. But it's another garden, another right. clear instance of the garden here in mm -hmm. C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia. Right. They were in a wide and perfectly circular enclosure, protected by a high wall of green turf, a pool of perfectly still water, so full that the water was almost exactly level with the ground lay before him. At one end of the pool, completely overshadowing it with its branches, there grew the hugest and most beautiful tree that Shasta had ever seen. Beyond the pool was a little low house of stone, roofed with deep and ancient thatch. Interesting that it's ancient thatch, right? There's that tradition. Mm-hmm. That's right. There was a sound of bleating, and over at the far side of the enclosure, there were some goats. The level ground was covered completely with the finest grass. 
And so this is a cultured place, right. a place of safety, a place of control, control and law balance. and structure and balance mm -hmm. and beauty. Right. So it's very much like the garden that Diggory encountered in um, The Magician's Nephew. Exactly. Are, are, are you, panted Shasta, are you King Loon of Archenland? The old man shook his head. No, he replied in a quiet voice. I am the hermit of the Southern March. And now, my son, waste no time on questions, but obey. This damsel is wounded. Your horses are spent. Rabadash is at this moment finding a ford over the winding arrow. If you run now, without a moment's rest, you will still be in time to warn mm -hmm. King Loon. This becomes Shasta's task. Shasta's heart fainted at these words, for he felt he had no strength left, and he writhed inside at what seemed the cruelty and unfairness of the demand. He had not yet learned that if you do one good deed, your reward usually is to be set to do another and harder and better one. This reminds me, of course, of the poem, If, That's right. by Rudyard Kipling. Kipling. But all he said aloud was, Where is the king? The hermit turned and pointed with his staff. Look, he said, there is another gate, right opposite to the one you entered by. Open it and go straight ahead, always straight ahead. I know by my art that you will find King Loon straight ahead, but run, always run. And this reminds me of two biblical verses. The first being, this is the way, walk ye in mm -hmm. it. And the second being, you shall mount up with wings mm -hmm. like eagles. Mm -hmm. You shall run and not be weary. You shall walk and not faint. Right. And this is Shasta's task. And he says that it's a relief mm -hmm. to have just a single task to do, no thought whatsoever to give to it, just right. simply just to go. run. Mm -hmm. And then eventually the hermit treats Ervis's wounds that right. she received by the lion, and Bree becomes ashamed of himself because of how he, he ran instead of turning back. Right. Now, daughter, her. you may sleep when you wish, mm -hmm. said the hermit. For your wounds are washed and dressed, and though they smart, they are no more serious than if they had been the cuts of a whip. It must have been a very strange lion, ten scratches, sore, but not deep or dangerous. There is something about this that I do not understand, but if ever we need to know it, you may be sure that we shall. And there's that notion of faith mm -hmm. in the goodness of Right. The hermit here expresses it very clearly, mm -hmm. and he believes that all things happen for a purpose, and that if we need to know those things, it will be revealed yes, to us. exactly. Right. Because you either believe in the goodness of the world, you put your faith in God, or everything is mere random chance, right. and there's nothing to put your faith in. The chapter then ends with Bree and his own shame mm -hmm. at what happened at the moment when they came into the garden. Slavery is all I'm fit for. How can I ever show my face among the free horses of Narnia? 
I, who left a mare and a girl and a boy to be eaten by lions, while I galloped all I could to save my own wretched skin. We all ran as hard as we could, said Wynne. Shasta didn't, snorted Bree. At least he ran in the right direction, ran back. And that is what shames me most of all. I, who called myself a warhorse and boasted of a hundred fights, to be beaten by a little human boy, a child, a mere foal, who had never held a sword nor had any good nurture or example in his life. So Bree is feeling shame, mm -hmm. probably for the first time in his life, recognizing that most important thing in the life of any person who is going to walk with God Right. that you don't measure up to the standard, exactly. right? And Shasta showed him up. Right. And this is that one moment that I feared I would cry, and I haven't <laughs> cried. I want you to note that. <laughs> Not yet. <laughs> I know, said Aravis. I felt just the same. Shasta was marvelous. I'm just as bad as you, Bree. I've been snubbing him and looking down on him ever since you met us, and now he turns out to be the best of us all. But this picks up on the point you made in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the little people. Yeah. We find out later that Shasta is of royal blood, but to this point, Shasta is really one of the little people. Yeah. The slaves, the people who are mere craftsmen, the right. workers, the people that nobody else ever takes any account of. And we find that the virtues really dwell there at that mm -hmm. level. And these, the supposedly higher level of society, Bree and Aravis, take notice of that. Right. And that humbles them, which is necessary for them as well. Mm -hmm. My good horse, said the hermit, who had approached them unnoticed, because his bare feet made so little noise on that sweet, dewy grass which reminds us, of course, of the magician right. in the Dawn Treader. My good horse, you've lost nothing but your self-conceit. If you are really so humbled as you sounded a minute ago, you must learn to listen to sense. You're not quite the great horse you had come to think from living among poor, dumb horses. Of course you were braver and cleverer than them. You could hardly help being that. It doesn't follow that you'll be anyone very special in Narnia. But as long as you know you're nobody very special, you'll be a very decent sort of horse. So the Hermit of the Southern March has the wisdom to inform Bree that the best thing you can be is just another one mm -hmm. of the good people right. of the world. All right, so the next chapter, we go back to Shasta, who's, who's been running and running and running until he finally runs into King Loon. Of Archenland. Right, who wasn't on his way to battle. They were hunting, right? Right, and, and had no idea that Rabidash is coming until right. Shasta delivers his message. Right, and so they take him seriously, and they get ready to go back. To so that, Anvar, which so is the castle. Can, so they can prepare to fight. Rabidash. And in the meanwhile, Shasta gets lost in the fog. Right. But in the fog, he hears something walking beside him. I do think, said Shasta, that I must be the most unfortunate boy that ever lived in the whole world. 
everything goes right for everyone except me. So Shasta is feeling sorry for himself. Right, exactly. And that's when he comes across. So what put a stop, the text says, to all this was a sudden fright. Right. Shasta discovered that someone was walking beside him. It was pitch dark and he could see nothing, and the thing, or person, was going so quietly that he could hardly hear any footfalls. What he could hear was breathing. His invisible companion seemed to breathe on a very large scale, and Shasta got the impression that it was a very large creature. And he had come to notice this breathing so gradually that he had really no idea how long it had been there. It was a horrible shock. The thing, unless it was a person, went on beside him so very quietly that Shasta began to hope that he had only imagined it. But just as he was becoming quite sure of it, there suddenly came a deep, rich sigh out of the darkness beside him. That couldn't be imagination. Anyway, he had felt the hot breath of that sigh on his chilly left hand. He went on at a walking pace, and the unseen companion walked and breathed beside him. At last, he could bear it no longer. Who are you? he said, scarcely above a whisper. One who has waited long for you to speak, said the thing. Its voice was not loud, but very large and deep. Are you, are you a giant? asked Shasta. You might call me a giant, said the large voice, but I am not like the creatures you call giants. I can't see you at all, said Shasta, after staring very hard. And of course, now we're getting a very clear picture mm -hmm. that what is being presented here are the names and the existence and the characteristics of God. Right, exactly. He is invisible. I don't see him. Right. He is a giant, so he's like a giant, but he's not like the giants that you would envision. Mm -hmm. So this is the mystery. I can't see you at all, said Shasta, after staring very hard. Then, for an even more terrible idea had come into his head, he said, almost in a scream, You're not, not something dead, are you? Oh, please, please do go away. What harm have I ever done you? Oh, I am the unluckiest person in the whole world. And of course, are you dead? That's the thing that the disciples cried right, exactly. too, right? Or, you know, Jesus, and are you Aslan, a, a ghost? And Aslan responds <clears throat> like, Jesus responds to Thomas. Right. Once more, he felt the warm breath of the thing on his hand and face. There, it said, that is not the breath of a ghost. Tell me your sorrows. Mm -hmm. And that, of course, is what God always says to us. Tell me your sorrows. Shasta was a little reassured by the breath, so he told how he had never known his real father or mother and had been brought up sternly by the fishermen. And then he told the story of his escape, and how they were chased by lions and forced to swim for their lives, and of all the dangers at Tashban, and about his night among the tombs, and how the beasts howled at him out of the desert, and he told about the heat and thirst of their desert journey, and how they were almost at their goal when another lion chased them and wounded Aravis, and also how very long it was since he had had anything to eat. I do not call you unfortunate, said the large voice. Don't you think it was bad luck to meet so many lions, said Shasta? There was only one lion, said the large voice. What on earth do you mean? I've just told you there were at least two the first night, and... 
There was only one, but he was swift of foot. How do you know? I was the lion. And as Shasta gaped with open mouth and said nothing, the voice continued, I was the lion who forced you to join with Aravis. And of course, we see that this is the story of Christ mm-hmm. being with someone all through their life. Exactly. And even when you don't know it. Exactly. And this is very personal to me. Yes, I know that. (laughs) (laughs) Because one of the things that became very clear to me when I turned my face and looked in the right direction Mm -hmm. after my 25 years of atheism was how God had been with me through every step of it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I know that's that poem. um, Footprints in the sand. Sand. Footprints in the sand is, is rather trite. Yeah. But it has some real validity yeah, it to does. it. Um, and I, I think of that every time I read this. Yep. I was the lion who forced you to join with Aravis. I was the cat who comforted you among the houses of the dead. I was the lion who drove the jackals from you while you slept. I was the lion who gave the horses the new strength of fear for the last mile so that you should reach King Loon in time. And I was the lion you do not remember, who pushed the boat in which you lay, a child near death, so that it came to shore where a man sat, wakeful at midnight, to receive you. Then it was you who wounded Aravis? It was I. But what for? Child, said the voice, I am telling you your story, not hers. I tell no one any story but his own. Who are you? asked Shasta. Myself, said the voice, very deep and low, so that the earth shook. And again, myself, loud and clear and gay. And then the third time, myself, whispered so softly you could hardly hear it, and yet it seemed to come from all round you as if the leaves rustled with it three times for the Trinity of God, and recognizing also what God said to Moses, I am Mm -hmm. sent you. The very structure of being, the mystery of mysteries, the reality Mm -hmm. that lies behind all of that which is less real than God himself. Right. And then... Up until this point, we struggled with this book because it was like a personal book. And it's, it speaks to each person individually. And it, seems, it, it seemed almost as if it was just pure story without a whole lot of theological content. Right. 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 And so it speaks to the reader personally. So, it, I mean, we can't discuss it because each person is going to take something different away when they read it. Right. Okay, but you found something extremely interesting at this point. Right, and I think that really this is the decisive moment mm-hmm. in The Horse and His Boy. It's like the episode of the Daily right. Mall in The Christian Atheist. Which one is that, number five? Or? I think it's number eight okay. or nine in the podcast. Okay. I'm not sure which one it is on YouTube. On YouTube. All right. But you but, have it. It's called that. But it's called the Denouement. Yeah, and so it's, just it's search the very that. last one in the series of right. the Machinery of the Looking Glass series. Right. If you just put that word in, it'll come up. Right. 
and so this is this is the unraveling of the whole story mm-hmm. in this moment. And everything after this is sort of window dressing mm-hmm. and Lewis just kind of closing off the story. Not that there's not things there. There are. Yep. But it all comes down to this, I think. This moment is the decisive encounter with Aslan. Right. And Lewis packs it full of delightful and profound imagery and meaning. But he does it in one page. <laughs> right. Yeah. In fact, I've got a list of things Mm-hmm. Um, that I want to read once we finish going over this, mm-hmm. because I think it's absolutely stunning how much Lewis packs into this like page and a half right. of text. It might be useful also to think of the Cat Stevens song, Morning Has Broken, as you read through this. Right. I'm always reminded of that section where he saw, talks about in the garden where his feet passed. And if you read the Chronicles of Narnia all the way through, all seven of them, the constant reference to the feet of Aslan, it's just over and over and over again how important they are. And qu'ils sont beaux les pieds, right? That was huge for me when I came back to Christ. The idea that those feet represent the incarnate reality of right. the Lord. And then, of course, along that same line, I think we mentioned the poem Footsteps. Yep. And I use the word encounter here very carefully. Mm -hmm. I chose it quite carefully. Because when I say encounter Aslan, it's an actual, physical, real encounter. And I don't think you find God any other way. Um, If you're looking to argue your way to God, I think you're going to fail every time. If you're looking for evidence of God. If you're looking for evidence, as I say in the evidence Mm -hmm. and faith, Evidence will only point you to a metaphysical reality you have already acknowledged. If you preclude that by not acknowledging God, you will never find God in anything that you do. Mm -hmm. So you have to actually encounter God in the world. And I'm not talking some mystical Uh -uh. religious experience. I've never had anything like that in my life. Exactly. But understanding that God is the basis of all of those things at the basis and the basis is good. As Mm -hmm. he says in Genesis, that God said that all that he created was good. Right. That's the starting point. And then when that encounter takes place, you can begin to understand all of the world, everything as evidence for God. And that's where you get, I think, as a Christian and you recognize (laughs) you're not going to look in a bare world for evidence for something that you don't know. Mm-hmm. You know God first, and then everything points right. to him. Right. So in the evident evidence and faith, I spent a lot of time trying to get clear about the distinction between the evident, our, our basic experience, and, and the distinction between evidence, that which points to something we've already acknowledged. God is encountered by everyone. And this, I think, is the greatest argument against atheism. Mm -hmm. Everyone has an encounter with God. You can't avoid it because God is everywhere Everywhere. and in everything, as this story with Shasta has made clear. Right. Right. Aslan has just run through this long list of events in Shasta's life and made it clear that he was present Mm -hmm. in every one of them. So God is encountered by everyone, and most especially at those those watershed moments in our life when our senses are most attuned and sensitive and when our destinies hang by a thread. 
what we make of these encounters, God leaves mm-hmm. to us. Right. This is the divine gift of freedom. Back in The Magician's Nephew, mm-hmm. Uncle Andrew encounters Aslan right. exactly as we're talking about here. He has a direct encounter with Aslan. Right. But his response to Aslan is very different from Polly and Diggory. Mm-hmm. And we see the contrast once again here with Shasta. How does Shasta do when he finally really encounters Aslan here? For Uncle Andrew, encountering Aslan was uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And instead of accepting it, he explained it away. Mm-hmm. It required too much from him. It was an unfathomable mystery that, that his rational faculties couldn't grasp. Um, and it was by his own subjective judgment, not good. You remember the song, mm-hmm. his first response to the song, and the witches as right. well response to the song. It's like, though, this is bad. We need to get away. Mm-hmm. And that's that fundamental first thing. I mean, you either are going to accept that God has something good for you in this universe, that he's the underlying good basis of things, or you're on the other side. Mm-hmm. So in, in this section, we see the contrasting pole in Shasta. And I'm just going to read this section. I know I've done a lot of reading in this one, but this is really worth commenting on. Mm-hmm. The mist was turning from black to gray and from gray to white. So Shasta has been riding on the horse with Aslan beside him, unable to see anything. Right. right? He's the divine mystery. Right. We don't know God. Anyone who claims to really know God is silly. Exactly. <laughs> because God's way too big to be known. Mm-hmm. But as you start to get to know him, as you encounter him, things go from black to to white. The light mm-hmm. starts to shine. Um, and I know for me, that was exactly my response in turning back to God from atheism. Right. It was that slow, steady increase in light mm-hmm. until that oh. weekend when I was in New York. <laughs> right. And I knew what was on the line was you. And I mean, in a lot of ways, this mirrors that whole experience. Exactly. So I'll continue with it. This must have begun to happen some time ago. But while he had been talking to the thing, he had not been noticing anything else. Now the whiteness around him became a shining whiteness. His eyes began to blink. Somewhere ahead, he could hear birds singing. (laughs) And I tell you, I heard the birds singing. (laughs) When I was in New York camping, and I remember uh, texting back and forth with you, Um, it was the birds that were keeping me moving Mm -hmm. forward um, because I saw beauty ahead of me. Mm -hmm. And and it was that slow dissipation of the darkness that was allowing me to move forward. He knew the night was over at last. And there was a time, actually, even before I turned back, even before I made the decision, when I knew the darkness had passed Mm -hmm. because I... Okay, so I just blew it. I saw the reality of God again, and I hadn't, not in that way, for Mm -hmm. 25 years. Exactly. And I knew the darkness had passed. He could see the mane and ears and head of his horse quite easily now. A golden light fell on them from the left. He thought it was the sun. He turned and saw, pacing beside him, taller than the horse, a lion. It was from the lion that the light came. 
No one ever saw anything more terrible or beautiful. And that is the response to God. Mm-hmm. It is terrible because it forces you to recognize who you are in light of that transcendent ideal. And beautiful because it's a glimpse of that transcendent ideal. Luckily, Shasta had lived all his life too far south in Kalorman to have heard the tales that were whispered in Tashban about a dreadful Narnian demon that appeared in the form of a lion. All the lies. And of course, he knew none of the true stories about Aslan, the great lion, the son of the emperor over the sea, the king above all high kings in Narnia. And here's the decisive moment. And I remember this moment as clear as I remember anything in my life. But after one glance at the lion's face, seeing Jesus again for who he was and who I was in that light, but after one glance at the lion's face, he slipped out of the saddle and fell at its feet. He couldn't say anything, but then he didn't want to say anything, and he knew he needn't say anything. Mm -hmm. And that is the clearest picture written in fiction of what it was I experienced in coming back to God, that moment, simply falling at his feet and worshiping. Mm -hmm. Um, We talked a little bit about feet, but that's, I guess, why it became so real to me. The incarnation of Christ and the feet that connect that real human high priest to the earth, um, that became a symbol for me that I can't even express even now brings tears to my eyes. It is that very moment that C.S. Lewis memorializes in his autobiography, Surprised by Joy, at the end of chapter 14, when he says, In the Trinity term of 1929, I gave in and admitted that God was God and knelt and prayed. It is that moment when God is just evident to you. His reality is real. His existence is impressed upon you. And you can either choose to reject it or accept it as what is given to you. A moment of finite humility standing before the yawning chasm of the infinite. So you have a list. Did you wanna did you wanna say that or Yeah. Or so did you wanna continue? This text by Lewis is so astounding mm-hmm. because in these few pages, these few paragraphs actually, right. he presents a picture of God that really reveals who this being is in a way that can only be revealed by an encounter. Right. Because you never find these things in reality. They're always bigger than reality. As Aslan said to Shasta, you can think of me as a giant, mm-hmm. but I'm not the giants that, like the giants that you think of. Right. Right. God is so big. So I, I put out a partial list here of all of the concepts for God that Lewis has contained in this, this bit. And, and let me just read it. God is being itself, the very substance of the real. God is light. He is the unfathomable mystery, the meaning, the unseen. He is the ultimate good, Aristotle's summum bonum. 
He is that before which, when we properly see him, encounter him, we fall down and worship because we are overwhelmed. We are awestruck by the vision of who he is. He is the divine word before which we are unable to speak. He is the divine logos, the word, the reason, the rationality. And when we see that perfect thing, we are struck dumb. Mm -hmm. As Shasta said, he couldn't speak. But as the divine word, he is also the giver of speech in the Imago Dei. He is the great creator, the author of those birds singing joyfully. He is, as we see at the beginning of the next chapter, the water of life. And Shasta is stunned by how big, there's that giant thing again, he would have to be to make that sort of footprint from which that water of life flows. He is the Lord of the garden. And there's that motif of the garden again, because um, we see it everywhere in Narnia. But he's just left the, the Hermit of the Southern March. But here's another garden inside mm-hmm. um, of, of, uh, or outside that garden. Right. And we find that actually Narnia itself is a, a garden, garden like that. Yeah. He is our great comforter, as he comforted Shasta here. He is the voice, the voice that said, I am. Or again, we might say the, the word itself, the divine word, the logos. And he is that in three different ways. He is the first deep, powerful, foundational voice as he began singing as he created Narnia back in Magician's Nephew. He is the second voice, clear, right? There's rationality, full of joy, right? The joy of life. And the third voice, still and small, Mm -hmm. that whispers to us. He is the great and righteous judge before whom we are accountable for all that we do. He is the author of our story, as he says here to Shasta. I was there through it all, Mm -hmm. and I was directing you, you and Aravis together. He is the ideal, the moral and aesthetic ideal. He is the truth. He is the transcendent that we encounter on earth. And he is the evident itself. He is there in every encounter on this earth, if we are wise enough Mm -hmm. to see it. So that's my list. And Jenny and I both were really struck with reading through this and understanding that this is a story about coming to God, about journeying through life. Mm -hmm and finding him. And it's a very personal story because your story will always be different than my story. Jenny's story is different than mine, although ours converged, thank God. (laughs) Um, And now it's our story. Do you think it's finding God, a journey finding God, or a journey to encounter God? I think it's about encountering God because, as you said before, we were walking today, Rabidash encounters Aslan too, just as Uncle Andrew did. Right. And so how you respond makes all the difference. And God gives us that right exactly. to freely respond to him. Mm-hmm. And then we have to bear the responsibility for our choices. Mm-hmm. And the witch. And the witch in her response, she yes. She runs away. Right. And both Uncle Andrew and the witch and Rabidash mm-hmm. have in common that they do not see the good right. in Aslan. Right. 
they reject that in favor of their own subjective vision of good. I was going to say the witch runs off and starts her own kingdom. Right. So we see those two fundamental responses that we talked about in the evident evidence and faith mm-hmm. um, of, of understanding God as the author of a good universe in which we can trust things right. and rejecting that. Mm-hmm. That's the way of Cain and the way of Abel. The chapter ends with this. The high king above all kings stooped towards him. Its mane and some strange and solemn perfume that hung about the mane was all round him. It touched his forehead with its tongue. He lifted his face, and their eyes met. Then instantly the pale brightness of the mist and the fiery brightness of the lion rolled themselves together into a swirling glory and gathered themselves up and disappeared. He was alone with the horse on a grassy hillside under a blue sky. And there were birds singing. As Mr. Beaver said, he will come and he will go at his pleasure. He is, after all, not a tame lion. Okay. So you cried. (laughs) You went long. Yes. And the only thing you didn't do was say Hegel. Hegel. Oh, okay. Okay. Till next time, folks. I am a Christian with the searching and skeptical mind of an atheist. I don't want to believe anything that isn't true. I know both sides of the looking glass, and I know them with open eyes. I choose Christ's side. I invite you to join me from wherever you stand before the looking glass. That's this week's episode. Thanks for listening. And remember, you can have your religious cake and eat it too. You can have reason, respect for science, a 21st century worldview, and be a Christian.